0: Spirit. Amen. So today we celebrate the Feast of the, of the Theophany. I think I'm on. Is that, can you hear me? Yeah. Today we celebrate the Feast of the, of the Theophany, that is the divine manifestation or God's appearance among men. And wherein, wherein, in his nativity, he came to us as a baby and really unknown to almost all people. Now he's publicly revealed and starts his public ministry. In, as a, He's baptised by St. John in the Jordan River. But one question that um, always comes up every time this feast comes around, and actually we heard it in the Gospel reading, is, well, why did Jesus have to be baptised? He's obviously sinless. Why, why did he need to be baptised? I can understand us being baptised, but you know, why did he need to be baptised? So let's have a look at that today. There have been many answers given to this question, and we heard a lot of them actually in the prayers and the, the hymns. We heard a lot of the reasons why. Um, the hymnography in the prayers state things like uh, Jesus' baptism sanctified the nature of the waters, um, enlightened all creation, allowed uh, the angels to celebrate with mortals, um, made manifest the worship of the Trinity, all of those things. Of course, all of those are true. Um, but today I want to talk about something a bit uh, a bit different, something that I found when I was reading um, an article on the website of the uh, Antiochian Archdiocese of North America. And a priest there, whose name was um, Father Stephen Solaris, he wrote, he wrote an article called Preaching Christ Crucified at Theophany. And um, what this was about was how the events that we celebrate today are actually an anticipation of Christ's victory through death on the cross. And so through this feast, the heart of the gospel is being preached Um, Every time we have this feast, the heart of the gospel is being preached. Um, So I'm going to rely a lot on what he says in that article and what follows. Now, of course, baptism was not invented by John the Baptist, St. John the Baptist. Um, Like most things that we still do in the Orthodox Church, it has its roots in Jewish practice, more specifically in the, the law. And the ritual of baptism is prefigured in the purification rites of Jewish law and tradition, So, when God commanded John to uh, baptise the people for repentance in the Jordan, it was a type of Jewish purification ritual, in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. But clearly, as I said, Jesus didn't need to be baptised. So, why was he then baptised? Remember, of course, as we read in the the Gospel readings, St. John was very hesitant. He said, I need to be baptised by you, why are you coming to me? But Jesus insisted on it, and he said that these things must be done to fulfill all righteousness. So let's consider what that means. What does it mean there when Jesus is saying, this needs to be done to fulfill all righteousness? To do that, we need to go back to the Old Testament and have a look at what's happening there. In Leviticus 16, which comes... in Levit- Leviticus um, has a whole lot of laws and things, but Levit- Leviticus 16 actually comes after a few chapters where there are all kinds of things that people do that can make them unclean and washings are commanded by God to make them clean. And then in chapter 16, we get the Day of Atonement. So the, uh, the Day of Atonement, God gives Moses the instructions for this, uh, for this ritual and during the ritual, a number of things have to happen but one of those things is that some animals are sacrificed, including two goats, Now Aaron the high priest was instructed to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats. This is Leviticus 16. Um, He'll cast lots for the two goats. One shall be for the Lord and the other one will be the scapegoat. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, bring its blood inside the veil, do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat, so shall he make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions, for all their sins. So, the first goat was a sin offering, and it was being done on behalf, sacrificed on behalf of all of the sinful Israelite people. For ancient Israel, and it is for us too, sin is not really a legal problem. Sin is much more like disease. So, as we turn away from the path of holiness, we and we sin and we do things which are against our, our nature, against what God wants us to do, we leave a trail of kind of corruption and a wake of sort of destruction in our, behind us. And the nature of sin is more like that, okay? It's leaving a kind of this, this mess around. And so, like an infectious disease, even when someone recovers from the disease... We still need to clean up the mess that the disease has caused, especially if it's an infectious disease you need to clean it away in case other people get infected. In the case of ancient Israel it was even more dire than that because God lived among his people but God is holy and God's holiness is like a consuming fire. So if the sin was allowed to remain in the camp, only two things could happen, the people would be destroyed or God would have to leave. Since God was a loving God and he wanted to stay with his people, he commanded commanded them to do things that would remove the sin from the people in the camp. But it needed to be done every single year. We then read about this second goat, the scapegoat. And this is what it says in Leviticus. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, so the atoning for the holy place was cleansing, purification of the altar and all the utensils in the temple. The sin of the people over the year kind of accumulated this, this taint in the camp and even in the templates in the tabernacle itself. And that needed to be cleaned away every single year. So after that's been done, Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of this live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man." The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat into the wilderness. So this goat is not killed. It has hands laid on it, sins are confessed over it, and then it's driven into the wilderness. So in ancient times, banishment into the wilderness, or or even exile, was more or less certain death. You couldn't live in the wilderness, and you wouldn't be able to survive. This scapegoat symbolised to the Israelite people the removal of sin by placing the sin on some other entity, in this case the goat, so that it would become the bearer of that sin. Now, the relationship to Jesus, of course, in the New Testament, is that he, he is taking the place of both of these goats. He is both the sin offering and the scapegoat at once. Moreover, he's not, just, he's, not just off, he's not just being offered, he's the one being offered. He's the one offering, I should say. So he's acting as a priest as well, in offering himself, but he is also being offered in these two ways, in these two different as two different these two different goats, the, the sin offering and the and the scapegoat. Let me explain a little bit about those things. So first, Jesus is our scapegoat. At his baptism, the sinless one, Jesus Christ, took upon himself willingly and voluntarily all of the sins of humanity past, present, and future. Every sin, every transgression, every fault and every error of fallen humanity, is now laid upon Jesus' head. In doing this, he fulfills the type seen in the Levitical scapegoat. After being baptised and assuming the burden of humanity's sins, Jesus goes out into the wilderness. In fact, the Gospel reading from the Blessing of Great Waters that we just had um, from St. Mark's Gospel, the verse just after that reading says, um, "...the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness." And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. It's significant that the spirit of God, it was the spirit that drove him out into the wilderness. This is God actually fulfilling in Christ the, this act of the scapegoat from the atonement ritual in the Old Testament. So God is fulfilling that whole thing. And fulfillment here is not just like just doing it. It's filling it up full, complete, absolutely overflowing so that it does not need to be done again. It needs to be done now. It's only being done just once, and that's it forever. And this identification is also made by um, John, John in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, when Jesus is coming towards uh, John the Baptist at the Jordan, does anyone know what he says? In in the Gospel of John, he actually doesn't even mention baptising Jesus. He just says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what he says. At that point in time, when in the other Gospels Jesus is being baptised, John the Baptist says in the Gospel of John, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, thus making that same identification that Jesus is the scapegoat. The second one, Jesus is the fulfilment of the sin offering, which is the first goat which is sacrificed by Aaron, and his blood is used to cleanse the holy place. Now, Jesus is driven out into the wilderness um, like the scapegoat, but of course he doesn't die he overcomes the temptations of the devil and then he returns from the desert to begin his public ministry but remember that baptism involves water and water and that's very important because water both in the old testament and in the ancient world is often a symbol of death and destruction so chaos and death so in his descent into the waters of the Jordan river at the hands of his cousin John the Baptist we see foreshadowed the death of Jesus Christ on the cross at the hands of his own people. By his crucifixion, life-giving divinity enters into the chaotic waters of death, subdues it and destroys it. Then, just as Jesus arises from the waters um, at his baptism, he also arises from the chaotic waters of death at his resurrection on the third day. So we see here this mystery of salvation being played out in anticipation of Christ's Pascha. In fact, it's like two bookends. The Pascha Pascha is the final kind of completion of this whole thing, but at the beginning, right at the beginning at Theophany, we have everything spelled out, what's going to happen. And it's the beginning of it, and everything after that is characterised by that movement of descent into death and resurrection that we see here at the baptism. So hopefully, hopefully that makes it a little bit clearer what this, why Jesus is being baptised. It's not just something that just happens. It's actually there in the Old Testament and he's fulfilling, God is fulfilling an Old Testament um, reality which was the yearly purification of the camp and the people from their sins. He's fulfilling that completely, now making it once and for all the purification and sanctification of his people and the world. So there are many things, of course, that could be said about that reflection. Many other things, but I want to draw out a couple of other things, a couple of different things, not exactly to do with that reflection, but things that we might like to think about. And the first of those is that we really do need to be reading the scriptures, because, as you can see from that reflection on uh, on the gospel reading, that the gospel writers are working very closely with the Scriptures from the Old Testament. And so when they've written their Gospel, when they've written those Gospels, they are actively kind of working with the readings and the writings of the Old Testament, the types and the figures, and putting it together for us to make things clear. But if we don't know what those types and figures are, we don't know where they come from, it's, we get a very shallow kind of understanding of what's happened. So as we begin to read more of the Scripture and try to understand those types of figures that have come before. Our understanding of church life, the Bible, and the liturgy, all kinds of things, will become so much richer. So it's really important that we read the scripture. And if you need help with that, of course there is a group that's just started up I think recently going through the Bible again in two years. So you can join that group and um, and, and get some help to continue reading it. The second thing is that The image of Christ fulfilling the Day of Atonement ritual in his baptism gives a deeper meaning to the the great blessing of the waters. Father Thomas Hopko, of blessed memory, he he died um, some years ago, but he wrote a book called um, The Winter Pascha. Now, The Winter Pascha, of course, in the Northern Hemisphere now, it's winter. So, The Winter Pascha was a a phrase coined by Father um, Alexander Schmemann. And The Winter Pascha was talking about the whole season from Christmas all the way through to Epiphany, I think, and then Christ's presentation in the temple. And he was talking about this whole season being the winter Pascha because everything that happens in that season is a reflection or, say, it's being reflected back from Pascha. From Pascha being reflected backwards, all of the same themes. Everything is there again. So that's why he wrote this book as a reflection on that. And what he wrote in in his book for um, The Blessing of Great Waters... Since the Son of God has taken human flesh and has appeared in the world, manifesting himself at his baptism in the Jordan, all flesh and all matter is sanctified. Everything is made pure and holy in him. Everything which is corrupted and polluted by the sinful works of man is cleansed and purified by the gracious works of God. All death-dealing powers of the devil, which poison the good world of God's creation, are destroyed. All things are again made new. Through the prime element of water on the feast of the Epiphany or Theophany, the entire creation is shown to be sanctified by God's word to the same Spirit of God who in the beginning was moving over the face of the waters. So hopefully you can see there this, the cleansing, purification, sanctification, how that's all related, this feast through the atonement, to the atonement imagery, the, the, the ritual of atonement. So today we're going to take away from, um, later on, we'll take away bottles of holy water. So what I wanted to encourage you to do is to use that holy water the water is, what, what he's done, what Christ has done, is he's prefigured his own saving death on the cross by entering into that water of baptism. And so holy water, with all of its uses, is a visible symbol that anticipates Christ's victory over death. And that will be completed at is So we have that visible symbol in this holy water. And we heard about all the different uses that it can be put to. Cleansing, sanctification, purification, healing of soul and body driving away of evil things all of those things holy water has that has that power because it is being um, it's much like in the the atonement ritual where Aaron sprinkled blood on the altar and whatever for for cleansing of the altar and all those things it's much like that, in fact the priest does the same thing in the church with the water, sprinkles it everywhere to cleanse so we see the same type of imagery being used here with this water so we should use it, what can you do with it We heard all kinds of things. You can sprinkle your house with it. I think this year um, we won't be able to have house blessings again, or they'll be they'll be delayed again. So we're going to have to do it ourselves. So there are some prayers I think that are available that we can use. We can bless our own houses. So we need to take that holy water and actually use it, cleanse our houses. It's not just it's water, of course, cleans cleans things, but it actually cleanses things in a spiritual way, right? It cleans away the taint, that taint. Have you ever met people or been in places where you go in and you go, ooh, something's not right here? Okay? Everyone's had that experience, I'm sure. That's... that's many places and things like have, have that kind of taint left from actions or whatever has happened in those places. Holy water can be used for cleaning those kind of things. So that's one thing. That's just one example. Another one, and a really good one, is St. Luke of... Um, Saint Luke the Surgeon of Sinferopol. he he's quoted as saying, and he was a, he was a surgeon, he was a medical doctor. He said, "Drink holy water. The more often, the better. It is the best and most effective medicine." I'm not saying this as a priest. I'm saying this as a doctor from my medical experience, which I think is very good advice. So, let's take that holy water and put it to use. God's given up, given it to us as a tool, and it's it's a tool for us to use to cleanse our bodies, our world, the, our environment around us. But it's also For us, a physical, physical symbol, something we can see, which reminds us that God has cleansed the world and it's purifying, slowly purifying the entire world and everything in it. We are raised from